Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Thursday, June 10th. I'm Maureen Cáceres. These are today's headlines. President Biden arriving in Europe as he seeks to mend ties with allies, pledging new cooperation to fight the coronavirus pandemic and presenting a new warning to America's adversaries. Back at home, jobless claims falling for the says back at home, jobless claims falling for the sixth straight week, a signal that COVID-19's crushing blow to the economy could be easing. And concerns about a new coronavirus variant while health experts weigh a rare condition possibly tied to the use of uh, damn it again. And concerns about a new coronavirus variant while health experts weigh a rare condition possibly tied to the use of mRNA vaccines in teens. This and much more today on You News, recorded live in our newsroom in Miami. President Biden arriving in Europe as he seeks to mend ties with allies, pledging new cooperation to fight the coronavirus pandemic and presenting a new warning to America's adversaries. Back at home, jobless claims falling for the sixth straight week, a signal that COVID-19's crushing blow to the economy could be easing. And concerns about a new coronavirus variant, while health experts weigh a rare condition possibly tied to the use of mRNA vaccines in teens. All that and more today on You News. And welcome to You News for Thursday, June 10th. I'm Lorraine Cáceres. Thank you for joining us today. President Joe Biden and the First Lady touched down in England Wednesday for the first leg of a three-stop tour spanning eight days. A series of high-stakes meetings with world leaders planned as the president makes an announcement today about the COVID vaccines. President Biden's first foreign trip as commander-in-chief is officially underway. Our alliances weren't built by coercion or maintained by threats. We're going to make it clear that the United States is back and democracies of the world are standing together. Right now, he's putting all the emphasis on U.S. allies. The president's giving a preview of his trip while speaking to U.S. troops after arriving in the U.K. I'm heading to the G7, then to the NATO ministerial, and then to meet with Mr. Putin to let him know what I want him to know. Biden's face-to-face -face meeting with Russian leader Vladimir Putin is now under a week away. The president says he wants peace, but if provoked, the U.S. will have no choice but to defend itself and its allies. Among the tense topics will be the rise in Russia-based ransomware attacks on critical U.S. infrastructure. The United States will respond in a robust and meaningful way when the Russian government engages in harmful activities. The White House still waiting to see if Putin will take questions alongside Biden, like he did with Trump. Meanwhile, the president is also preparing to launch a major global immunization effort. 
announcing today that the U.S. will donate 500,000 million doses of Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine to 92 low- and lower-middle-income countries and the African Union. The shots will start shipping out this August. There's no wall high enough to keep us safe from this pandemic. According to Bloomberg News, G7 leaders also vowing to deliver at least 1 billion extra doses of vaccines over the next year to help cover 80 percent of the world's adult population. The plan? Ending the pandemic by December 2022. This week, the White House press secretary was asked how President Biden was preparing for this trip abroad. She said, quote, he's been getting ready for 50 years. Well, today, Biden is meeting with British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Biden's trip to Europe runs through the middle of next week. In Miami, Florida, Andrea Linares, U News. Thank you, Andrea, for that report. And meanwhile, the world is seeing a pronounced and increasingly dangerous rise in ransomware attacks from government agencies to food suppliers to hospitals and more. Concerns about these attacks are at the top of the president of President Biden's agenda at this week's G7 summit. Joining me now to discuss this is Jason Crabtree. He's the CEO of Complex, a cybersecurity and risk analytics company. Thank Thanks for being here, Jason. Great to be here, Lorraine. What's behind the rise in cyber attacks? I think the main thing is that this is really just a continuation of the same attack techniques and behaviors that we've seen for some time, but it's getting easier and easier for these well-resourced criminal organizations to get paid and to find really vulnerable companies that they can exploit. And they're preying on those organizations by threatening to expose these breaches. There's a lot more that happened than have been in the news or by shutting down operations like you saw with JBS, with Colonial, where they're going to be under immense pressure to get things going again. And now that you mentioned JBS, that meat supplier says they paid $11 million after a ransomware attack last week. Despite the FBI warning companies, they shouldn't do so. Should these types of payments be banned by law? Well, I think it's important to recognize that a lot of these organizations are paying because they can't necessarily restore from backups. And this is one of the reasons why you have to be backing up your actual configurations, your software, your capabilities. You actually have to practice restoring from it as well. And you've got to improve your security programs. It can't just be depending on the federal government. At the same time, we absolutely have to put a much greater cost and consequence in place for criminal actors like ransomware organizations. But I think if you were to really ban these things outright, there are a number of organizations that we would have to assume won't necessarily be able to resume operating at all. And Jason, ransom amounts requested by these cyber criminals are not astronomical compared to the company's revenues. Colonial Pipeline paid roughly $4 million, JBS $11 million. Is there a reason that those responsible for attacks are keeping these ransoms relatively low? Well, I think there's two parts of this. One, the very significant organizations do pay big ransoms, right? CNA Financial earlier this year paid $40 million. And that's a large insurance company in the middle of the United States. And so the reality is they can get quite large, but ransomware organizations are smart. They hacked a cyber insurance company, in part CNA, because they wanted to get access to their client list and they got a lot of the data. And it turns out that if you look at other organizations like Ryuk or Conti, Ryuk's famous for actually finding financial information. And then when someone says, we can't afford to pay the ransom you asked for, they'll actually include financial data and say, we know how much money you have. Here's your financial statement. We know you can afford it. What is the role of Bitcoin facilitating these attacks? 
Well, Bitcoin has certainly been a part of the ransomware ecosystem, but it's a mistake to assume that it's the root cause of it. So it turns out that Bitcoin's made it easier to move funds across borders, but it is also traceable. So you can see the FBI, for example, recovered a portion of the ransomware payment that was originally made to the DarkSide affiliated Colonial, and several million dollars were recovered. But I think it's important to note that organizations are really struggling with this tough challenge of do I pay it or not? It's easy to say no, but they're responsible to their shareholders to resume operations. They're not responsible to, I'll call it society, uh, to make arbitrary decisions about the values about whether or not we want to do this or not. So we really have to improve our defenses at the same time that we're actually hopefully reducing the incentives and putting pressure on these organizations to make it more difficult to monetize. And Jason, what else have we learned about this week's internet outage on major websites around the globe? Was it sabotage or a glitch? Well, the Fastly outage that happened earlier this week lasted about an hour, and it did bring down major websites around the world, including things like New York Times. But in reality, Fastly was a content delivery network, one of several, and a number of whom have actually had outages like this in the past. Fastly was simply a configuration error uh, that was a software bug. And when a client changed the configuration, it triggered an outage. It took them about an hour to fix it. And I actually think Fastly did a great job of informing the public. There are some challenges though, CDN networks like that that serve content around the world, uh, BGP, sort of the postal service of the internet, and DNS network, think of it like the phone book of the internet, are all susceptible to DDoS attacks. And in the past, you have seen folks like Russia and China abuse those things uh, to, to their own end. And finally, Jason, bring it down to the micro level. What can users do themselves to protect their own data? Yes. Yeah, so if you're a user, if you're a small business, a couple things that you want to do, um, probably the top three things in your list should be get a password manager. Don't reuse passwords. Events like Colonial were in part because a, a password was available and someone was able to use that to get into the network initially. The second thing is make sure you're actually backing up your data and practicing restoring from it. And you can do that as a, as a user, right? Whether that's your phone or your computer, you can also be doing that at work. And the third thing is you actually have to go ahead and make sure that you're having visibility and logging this stuff on your network and turning on multi-factor authentication. So if you don't have those things set up, you just make yourself an easier target or you make it harder to respond to these events. But if you do those three things, you're going to be much better off than you would be otherwise. Very, very good advice. Thank you so much for your time, Jason Crabtree, CEO of Complex. Great to be here. And in other major news we're tracking, no more Keystone Pipeline project. TC Energy Corp announced Wednesday that it has terminated the effort. The move does not entirely come as a shock, considering President Joe Biden revoked a key permit when he took office in January. The Keystone project has been a political landmine over the past few years. Supporters said it would benefit U.S. energy capabilities, while critics said it posed a threat to the environment. Meanwhile, in Washington, the Justice Department says it will argue to support a federal law that critics claim allows for the discrimination of LGBTQ students. Tuesday, the DOJ said in a court filing it will continue to defend Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972. Title IX bans discrimination on the basis of sex in schools and programs receiving federal money, but it exempts religious organizations, students at three religious high schools, uh, education high schools in Oregon are suing the government due to that exemption. They say it allows schools with discriminatory policies to get federal funding. DOJ attorneys point out they have a duty to defend all federal laws in court. 
And a new report from the Interior Department suggests that U.S. Park Police did not remove racial justice protesters from Lafayette Park during then-President Trump's controversial visit to St. John's Church last June. The watchdog report released Wednesday instead says that the USPP dispersed the crowd in order for a contractor to install a fence around the White House. But shortly after the protesters were cleared, Trump walked over to the walked over to the church for a photo op that had him holding a Bible and declaring himself the quote law and order president. And the number of Americans applying for unemployment benefits fell for the sixth straight week as the U.S. economy reopens rapidly after being held back for months by the coronavirus pandemic. The Labor Department reported that jobless claims fell 376,000 from 385,000 the week before. Before the pandemic brought economic activity to a near standstill in March of 2020, weekly applications were averaging below 220,000. And a second COVID vaccine may soon be available for teenagers. Moderna requesting approval from the FDA to use its vaccines on 12 to 17 year olds. This as concerns grow over the Delta variant. Here is the very latest. Moderna today taking a big step, officially requesting emergency use authorization from the FDA for its COVID-19 vaccine on 12 to 17 year olds. This as important discussions among health authorities are happening. FDA advisors meeting to discuss the authorization of coronavirus vaccines for use in pediatric populations younger than 11 years old. What I think we're going to do at that meeting is we're going to decide what the parameters are for um, approval, either through emergency use authorization or through for licensure uh, down to for much younger age groups. And a CDC advisory panel also analyzing whether a link exists between mRNA vaccines and potential heart problems in vaccinated teens, particularly in males. This after reports of a higher than expected number of cases of myocarditis and pericarditis. So far, the condition is still rare and patients responded well to medication and rest. Meanwhile, the new variant, Delta, originally from India, concerning health authorities here in the U.S. The Delta variant really is a double threat because it is both more infectious and it can evade our immune responses. Six percent of new COVID infections in the U.S. are the Delta variant. And although COVID cases nationwide are at an all-time low. A 94% decrease from COVID-19 cases since January of this year. Over the past week, hospitalizations have doubled in counties with the lowest vaccination rates. For those who are unvaccinated, uh, they are increasingly at risk uh, as more and more variants uh, develop. So far, eight states have fully vaccinated more than half of their residents against COVID-19. Vermont leading the country with nearly 60%. In trials, Moderna's COVID vaccine showed to be highly effective in teens. Of 37,000 uh, participants in that age group, none who received the vaccine contracted COVID-19 starting 14 days after the second doses. 
And the CDC is reporting that about 11 million Johnson & Johnson vaccines, nearly half of the amount delivered throughout the U.S., are sitting in storage and rapidly approaching expiration. It's not clear how many Johnson & Johnson doses are now at risk of expiring they're, they're before they're used. The pace of vaccinations has slowed in recent weeks as nearly half of the eligible U.S. population, people 12 and older, is already fully vaccinated. Meanwhile, the company says the expiration dates for its COVID-19 vaccine have been extended an extra six weeks after a safety review. And now to California, where there are high hopes for possible herd immunity in the Bay Area. Luis Mejid brings us a report from San Francisco. It took a long time, but life in San Francisco is becoming what it used to be like before the pandemic. In spite of wearing a mask, Vicky Isidro says vaccines were a game changer. 80% of city residents received at least one shot. Almost 70% are completely vaccinated. At that rate, San Francisco has become the first city in the nation to achieve herd immunity. Mucha de nuestra comunidad este, sí confía en la ciencia y sí fueron muy... Este, Local experts sí. say that people here believe in science and they made sure they got vaccinated. With most people protected, the virus is having a hard time finding new hosts to infect. But while San Francisco is reaching a milestone, new cases of the Delta variant are making people sick across the country. The good news is that the vaccine will even protect you from variants. The government wants to vaccinate 70% of the country by the 4th of July. To get there will be much more difficult than what it was accomplished here in the city. In San Francisco, Luis Mejid, U News. Emma Coronel, wife of Mexican drug kingpin Joaquin El Chapo Guzman, pled guilty today for her involvement in her husband's multi-billion dollar criminal empire. Edwin Piti is outside of the courthouse with the details. Edwin? That's right, Lorraine. Emma Coronel, wife to Mexican drug lord Joaquin El Chapo Guzman, pleaded guilty to drug trafficking charges here at this federal court in Washington, D.C. It was just last week when her attorney, Mariel Colon, told Univision that she was trying to negotiate a plea deal with U.S. prosecutors, and she made clear that that agreement did not include collaborating with the authorities. Now, despite Coronel admitting culpability today, she has yet to be sentenced. It was back in February when a judge told her that she could spend the rest of her life in prison. And right there, Mariel Colon, her attorney, started negotiating with U.S. prosecutors to try to get a sentence lower than 10 years. But so far, um, Coronel defense insists that she's not going to cooperate with authorities, meaning that she's not going to reveal any secret as to how the uh, Sinaloa cartel operates. But according to experts, the, uh, revealing secrets to the government is really the only way that she will be able to get a lower sentence. Now, according to a subject matter, he's saying that maybe because of the fear the coronel has for her life and her twins, the government might never reveal what type of information they receive from coronel. Let's remember that Emma was arrested back in February at the Dallas International Airport, very close to Washington, D.C., and since then, she has been at a Virginia prison on charges of drug trafficking. We are reporting on this court in Washington, D.C. Lorraine, back to you. 
Thank you, Edwin, for that report. And now to the west, where a wildfire in Utah is growing, it's and it's prompted the closure of a highway southeast of Provo. The Bear Fire started Tuesday afternoon and now covers more than 5,300 acres. The blaze was at 0% containment as of Wednesday night. The Bureau of Land Management says it was caused by a lightning strike. And in Arizona, two wildfires are burning about 100 miles east of Phoenix. The blazes have scorched nearly 150,000 acres as of Wednesday afternoon. The Telegraph fire has spread across 81,000 acres and is 21% contained. The Mezcal fire engulfed 70,000 acres of land with 23% containment. More of you news after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. They don't know when they're going to be able to go back to work. Victims also from Mexico and this mass shooting. Officials in and out of the residence. We're going to continue fighting. Your news covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your news, your world, your news on Fusion. Welcome back to You News. Two organizations founded by opposition leader Alexei Navalny have been declared extremist groups in Russia. Navalny, who is serving a prison sentence, has been a thorn in President Vladimir Putin's side for years. Wednesday's ruling by a court in Moscow means Navalny's regional political offices and his anti-corruption foundation must shut down and their members cannot run in upcoming elections. In a post on social media, Navalny said his political work will not be silenced. The U.S. State Department, in a response, ex expressed that Russia has effectively criminalized one of the few remaining independent political groups. And closer to home in Latin America, Peru's right-wing presidential candidate Keiko Fujimori has announced she would take legal action alleging irregularities in Peru's presidential elections after her rival Pedro Castillo took a lead in that race. Speaking at a press conference late Wednesday, Fujimori said her team filed requests to have 802 voting reports vo voided by Peru's national jury of elections. She said that those voting reports would equate to some 200 thousand votes. The country's national jury of election has yet to respond to Keiko's demand. With more than 99 percent of the votes counted, the figures from the Peruvian electoral authorities show Castillo with 50.2 percent of the votes, and he is ahead of Fujimori, who has received 49.8 percent of the votes. Meanwhile, in Nicaragua, the government of Daniel Ortega has intensified repression of opposition presidential candidates and journalists. The U.S. government responding with sanctions on Wednesday. The main target of those sanctions, the daughter of Ortega and his wife, Rosario Murillo, who is also the vice president of Nicaragua. Jonathan Mejia brings us that story. The Nicaraguan government continues to strike out against opponents, arresting four well-known personalities, among them two presidential precandidates. If you're watching this video, it is because I have been incommunicado or captured. Both men prepared pre-recorded messages since the arrest of precandidate Chamorro last week. The prosecutor's office, that is widely believed to be aligned with President Daniel Ortega, launched an offensive against journalists and organizations critical of the government. Mis manos están limpias, 
Mi conciencia está limpia, al igual que los más de 130... My hands are clean. My conscience is clean. The same as the more than 130 political prisoners that resist from the cells just because they think differently. The Biden administration reacted with sanctions against four key supporters of the Ortega administration. Among them, the daughter of President Ortega and Vice President Rosario Murillo, Camila Ortega Murillo, who is the director of Channel 13, an Ortega family operation that, according to the U.S. Treasury Department, uses government funds to promote government propaganda. The sanctions will limit the economic activity of the targeted officials. Vice President Murillo, in her regular midday message, called their opponents corrupt and thieves. Son los mismos. Ah, pero creen. They are the same, but they believe that they are beyond a punishment, that they have letters of impunity. Meanwhile, members of what is a rather fractured opposition are anxiously awaiting to see who will be detained next. Hoy nosotros hemos visto la arbitraria persecución. Today we are seeing the arbitrary persecution, harassment, imprisonment, and marking of people the regime calls homeland traitors. Reported by Tiffany Roberts, Jonathan Mejia, U News. In Colombia, a national strike committee calls for a new day of massive demonstrations against the government Wednesday. The opposition, led mainly by unions, urged the taking of Bogota, that, that message raising fears of new episodes of violence. The first disturbances occurred in the vicinity of El Dorado Airport, where a group of indigenous people tried to demolish the statue of Christopher Columbus. The police dispersed the protesters with tear gas. Thanks for listening to You News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow You News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe, rate, and review. Join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.